0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I am very excited to be with you and to be back in the Gospel of John. Uh, I loved preaching through Haggai, um, but I am excited for the journey that we're going to be on over the next few weeks, taking us to Easter time. We're in John chapter 18, and we're going to read together today John 18 from verse 1 to 27. It's John 18, 1 to 27. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, Of those whom you gave me I have lost, not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They first led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him If what I said was wrong bear witness about the wrong but if what I said is right why do you strike me and as then sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself so they said to him You also are not one of his disciples are you He denied it and said I am not One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come before you again today and and ask humbly, Lord, that this incredible section of Scripture would be made alive in our lives, that we would see Christ more clearly. Father, we pray that you would take the distraction, the confusion, the lukewarm tepidness out of our hearts this morning, and that we would stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. We ask this in his holy name. Amen. It was from a garden that all our, our trouble began. God made Adam to walk with him in the garden and everything was good there. There was no sin and there was no death in the garden. Adam was made to know and enjoy perfect peace, to walk humbly with his God, to know and worship him. A command was given that came with a promise of blessing and joy in submission to a good Father, and Adam sinned and disobeyed that command not to eat from the fruit of the one tree. And everything changed. Sin changed everything. Shame entered our experience, clouded our existence. And in that garden where Adam and Eve were made to know the presence of God, they hid from their God. As we come back to our study in John, the Bible is coming full circle. We are are back in a garden located with Christ and his disciples. Now it's significant in John's account of the garden that it's different to how the synoptic gospels portray it. In the synoptic gospels, what we see in the garden is anguish. We see desperate prayer. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. We see Jesus in his anguish peering from the darkness into the horrors at what is coming the next morning, what is coming in the cross. Not just the the horrors of physical torment, but as we sang something else, a spiritual reality, the wrath of God poured out upon the Son of God for the sins of the world. And John, we don't see this same anguish because John wants us to to see this arrest narrative from a different angle. John has already taken the account of the anguish in the garden and he's said it in the broader narrative by mentioning Christ's contemplation in the week leading up to the cross. As early as chapter 12 and 12 verse 27 and 28, we see Jesus praying and saying, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. John shared in detail the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples on this night, right before his arrest, words to prepare and encourage, words that have been precious to the church for 2,000 years, words that we swam in for months last year. Culminating in this prayer in chapter 17, where Jesus prays for his disciples, prays for protection, and he prays for the church, and he prays ultimately for glory. Father, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. That great prayer prayed. They move from the city, out the gates, across the Kidron Valley, to a familiar garden. And it is from this garden that we begin to see Christ's prayer for glory be answered, not just in what follows after the cross, but in the details leading up to the cross and culminating in the cross itself, the very glory of God. And John will now begin to weave together the glory of the Son of God in in the most unlikely of places, in His suffering. And in every detail in this journey, John would have us read and and learn and say, this is the glorious one that I love. John's perspective of the garden is that of a resolute king. Somebody ready. Somebody knowing his purpose. He highlights Jesus' choice of this garden. This is deliberate. Jesus knows the opportunity that he's providing to Judas They're out there alone in the dark, away from the crowds. A safe place to be arrested. Jesus is initiating this final hour. This is his stand. We see his resolve. This text is about the greatest resolve that the world has ever seen. It is the outcome of the other narratives, those synoptic gospels where Jesus expressed that desire Not my will be done, but yours. That's what he's about to do. He steps out. He steps forward with a purpose that is unequaled in the history of the world. A purpose that no one can thwart. No one can frustrate. A purpose that had been established before time began. In verse 4 it said, Knowing all that would happen to him, Jesus came forward. In the old King James, Jesus went forth. He went out to meet the trouble. This is that moment. I don't often think of myself as an emotional person, but there are times in movies where I can get emotional. And in that moment where the king rides out first, stands up and takes responsibility, rides off into battle. In this moment, this is what we see in Jesus. He steps forward alone as the angels gaze on with bated breath At what is to follow? In the first garden, Adam fell. He sinned and then he hid. He hid in the garden. And coming full circle now in Scripture, the second Adam is not hiding. He's not here at the the mercy of his enemies. It was in a garden that all our trouble started. It's from another garden that our King stepped forward for us to meet that trouble face on to fight the enemies that bound us. And in his arrest, Christ is not overwhelmed by forces that are beyond his control. He's not a little man caught up in things too big for him. He isn't trapped. He's not cornered by a mob that he didn't see coming. Christ is springing a trap of his own. He's laying the ambush. And victory against sin and death is around the corner. H.G. Wells once likened the world to a great stage, a stage production that is produced and managed by God. And he says, As the curtain rises, the set is perfect. A treat to every eye, the characters are resplendent. Everything goes well until the leading man steps on the hem of the leading lady's gown and it causes her to trip over a chair and knock over a table. And the table knocks into a wall, and the scenery comes down on the heads of the main characters. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, God is running around, shouting orders, pulling strings, trying desperately to restore order from chaos, but alas, he is unable to do so. Wells's God was little and limited. That's not the God of the Bible, and it's not the Christ of our text. And that's what John wants to highlight for us. So in this passage, where we see the final movement to the cross, the beginning of this movement, I want to highlight three things about Jesus' first step. Things that reveal his resolve and reveal his heart about us. Jesus stepped forward with purpose. And firstly, we're going to see in verses 1 to 6 how he stepped forward in power. In verses 7 to 9, how he steps forward to protect And then in verses 10 to 27, he steps forward for Peter. Number one, Jesus stepped forward in power. Volumes have been written about what to do with Christ, about what to do with his, what to make of his life and his death and his supposed resurrection. For so many, Christ was a great man who changed history somewhat, but he is nothing more than that, nothing more than a prophet or a good man, or a good teacher. In 1906, Albert Schweitzer wrote a landmark book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. Right? National Geographic is not the first to do this, all right? Jesus, in this book, was a man dominated by an ideal, and he somewhat changed history. But Schweitzer says that he was crushed in that process. He likened the world to the ship, And it says that Jesus came to the wheel of the ship and thought that he could turn the wheel and change history and bring it to its culmination, to its end. And when he gets to the wheel, he realizes that the wheel won't budge. And so what he does is he throws himself upon that wheel. And then it does turn, but it takes him with it and and crushes him in the process. And Schweitzer says, this is Jesus' victory. That still on that wheel is his mangled body. His mangled body that has changed history. Jesus overreached. He overreached. Is this the Jesus that we see in John's narrative? Certainly not. In every detail from the arrest to the empty tomb, to one of his disciples, the doubter, who looks upon nail-scarred hands and cries out, My Lord and my God. John would disavow us of this notion This word for band means usually a few hundred soldiers. And we're not sure exactly how many were there that day. But the other gospels say it was a crowd. It was a crowd that have come. The, the Jews have come, the, the authorities from the temple, but they have the backing of Rome. This band of soldiers is Roman soldiers. They're here to make sure that this goes down without a fuss. They're armed to the teeth and ready for a fight. This is overkill. This is Jew and Gentile together, ready, and the world has made its move, ready to do evil and violence against the Son of God. They come with torches to to arrest the one who is the light of the world, and they come with weapons to arrest the one who is the Prince of Peace, and they come representing us all, a world in rebellion, a world who is not worthy of Him. Verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who, was, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now I wonder, what, what was going on in Judas's mind when this was happening? What was happening in the mind of the soldiers when they fall back to the ground? When the guy you're trying to arrest says a word and it knocks you to the floor, that's clue number one that you're in over your head, that you're not in control of what's happening. To the one who is the word of creation, who speaks, and the wind and the wave obey him. Who speaks and legions of demons shudder. This rabble of human opposition is nothing before him. Is this a man caught on the wheel of history? About to be crushed by its weight? Or is this the axis around whom history turns? Jesus is the one in control in this passage. John ten seventeen to 18, he said, I lay, my, my, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And you notice the words that he spoke that caused them to fall down. They say, or he says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. In your Bible, it says, he responds, I am he. That word he is an addition. Jesus says, ego amy. We've seen this before in John. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. I am. John, throughout his gospel, has used this language spoken by Jesus. This is the name revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Moses comes to God and God says, Go and free my people. Go and lead them out of Egypt. And he says, If I go to your people and say, God is springing you out of Egypt, and they ask me, What is his name? What am I to say to them? God says, I am who I am. Say to them, I am. Yahweh, I am, has sent me. John highlights how Jesus, throughout this gospel, takes this name upon himself. And the great ego Amy, the I am sayings of the gospel of John, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Before Abraham was born, I am, Jesus has said. And the world, when the world comes knocking on the door to arrest him, Jesus is waiting. And as Moses falls to the ground when he meets with God because he cannot stand in the presence of a holy God, One word from Jesus knocks these men to their feet because for a moment, the veil is opened. For a moment, his glory is seen. Just for a brief instant, the true identity is on display. There is purpose in this moment that these men cannot begin to comprehend. What do you make of this man? What do you make of Jesus? There are many truth claims in our world, and many religious leaders have said, Let me show you the way to truth. Let me show you life. Only one says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No mere man is allowed to say that. If a man says that and he's only a man, then he's an evil liar or he's a confused fool. And my my point in in saying this and in asking you this question is because there is a response to Christ that makes no sense that we see so often in the world and we see sometimes, unfortunately, even in the church. So if you go and you read the gospel accounts and you read what, what Christ actually said, what he actually said about himself, and if you come to the conclusion that you hate him for it, You hate him because he says, I and the Father are one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That response actually makes sense. Because it means that you at least are listening to what Jesus says about himself. And if you come to the Gospels and you read what he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you fall down on your knees and you worship. And you say, command me. You are Lord. My all for you. That response makes sense because it means you've understood what Jesus is saying about himself. But the response that we so often see that makes no sense is this kind of tepid, lukewarm association with the Son of God. A half-hearted sort of indifference towards him. I feel the the weight of this book so heavily on my shoulders because this is what John would have you never come to. This conclusion that I can just be casual with the Son of God. With Jesus, it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. He's not a, a paddle pool that we play around in like my kids do. He is the ocean that we drown in. What do you make of Jesus? Number two, Jesus stepped forward to protect Martin Luther said of the arrest account that the greatest miracle here, greater even than, than ears being picked up off the floor and put, being put back on people's heads, is the fact that in this arrest, not one of the disciples was killed or arrested along with Jesus. When insurrectionists are taken in, this isn't how it goes down, especially when ears start flying. But Christ is in complete control. And as the wolves begin to circle, what we see here is the good shepherd stepping forward. The good shepherd stepping in front of the sheep. Verse 7, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. In John chapter six, Jesus says, "All who the Father sends will come to me, and all who come to me, of all who come to me, I will not cast out, and I will not lose one." In chapter ten, twenty-eight, he says, "I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand." And in chapter seventeen, he prays this prayer of protection, saying that he has lost none of his own. Christ's promise, which is primarily spiritual in nature, here we see has a, a sort of immediate physical down payment to guarantee. Christ's actions in his arrest are symbolic of his heart towards his disciples, his heart towards you and me. Sinclair Ferguson said this is an acted out parable that he would rather die than lose any of his disciples. And this is his heart for us. Christ's heart is not tepid. It is not lukewarm. It is not casual. And he did die rather than lose one of his own. Jesus stepped forward to protect. And he stepped forward in the greater narrative as our substitute. If you seek me, let these men go. The language there is the same language in the Bible we see for forgiveness. Forgive them and take Me, me for them. It's the heart of the gospel, substitution. This is the greater narrative going on. It's the greater purpose. He stepped forward to save us from a fate worse than physical death. Judgment against our sin this is a picture of the resolve of Christ. This is what he's doing and this is where he's going. He's the great I am. He's the judge of the universe who subjects himself to judgment in our place. He does nothing in his arrest or in his trial to save himself from this fate because he has another purpose in mind. Does scripture leave us with the option of casual acquaintance with Jesus Christ? Is the one option it doesn't give us With him, it is all or nothing. And if we can get it into our hearts, this picture, this commitment of Christ, his resolve to save us, to protect us, to have us, that must change everything. It must change everything. So that when you're out in the cold and the only warmth is the fire of his enemies and they look you in the eye and they ask in derision, Are you not one of his disciples? You look back and you say, I I am. I am. Which is why (laughs) what makes next, what, what happens, makes his sacrifice all the more amazing. Finally, number three, we see that Jesus stepped forward even for Peter. We learn from this passage that Jesus' commitment is not purchased by worthy recipients. But it's displayed for those who disown him. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The the narrative is just set up, isn't it? Who other than Peter to step forward like this and to misconstrue what's going on? other than Peter to not be able to accept what's happening to misstep and what an enigma this man who's about to deny Jesus in front of a servant girl pulls out his sword in front of a crowd of soldiers and seems ready to make good on his word he had said I won't deny you I would die for you Peter pulls out his sword and he jumps into the fray and make no mistake Peter is not Zorro right he's not aiming at the ear Alright, he's he's either trying to liberate Malchus of his head or split it like a watermelon. But Peter apparently wasn't very good with a sword. Dear Carson says this blow was as clumsy, the blow was as clumsy as Peter's courage was great. The tactic as pointless as Peter's misunderstanding was total. And again, what we see in the Gospel of John is a denial from Peter. To accept what Christ has said is the way forward. To accept that Christ would be the one to go and die on a cross. Ready to jump in and, and, and fight with a sword. The one who knocks people over. But not ready to follow the one who goes to the cross. He denies him three times in this passage. And knowing Peter, and knowing in all honesty my own heart, my own fickleness, how so often, instead of standing up and following, I deny him by choosing sin. How often do we not disown him by choosing sin? Isn't it wonderful in this passage that at this point he doesn't actually say, you know what, I changed my mind, take him instead. (laughs) I'm fed up, I'm done. Do you marvel at the grace of Christ? How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. He was resolved to drink that cup for you. From this point, the Son of God is led off to trial, and we're going to look next week at the, the trial before Pilate. John focuses on that trial. He doesn't actually mention that, or he mentions it, but he doesn't give any details of the trial before Caiaphas, the trial before Herod. But what he does in the rest of this passage is he just interweaves two trials, Jesus' initial trial before Annas and Peter's trial in a courtyard. While Jesus encouraged is standing up for his disciples and standing up in his purpose, Peter is denying his Savior, denying Jesus. If you were confused, Annas is called the high priest, and Caiaphas is also called the high priest. High priest was a position that was meant to last for a lifetime, but the, at this point in history, the Romans often uh, stood in, stepped in, and they had deposed Annas, who was the high priest. Um, but uh, Caiaphas was Annas's um, son-in-law, and no fewer than five of Annas's other sons had also been high priests. So Annas still had a lot of influence. The Jews didn't like that the Romans stepped in like this, and Annas was often still recognized as high priest by the Jews. That's why he's called high priest as well in this passage. He's sort of like a, the, the godfather high priest, yeah, the, the high, patriarch high priest at this time. Caiaphas will wait his turn. Annas has first dibs on Jesus. And he questions Jesus about his teaching and about his disciples, looking for something, some chink in the armor, something that he can use to take to Rome to incriminate Jesus or his followers, try to build a case or twist something to make a conspiracy out of it. Jesus isn't playing ball. Jesus says to him, I've got no hidden agenda. What I've said in front of my disciples, I've said in front of the thousands that I taught, go and ask anyone what I've taught. Leave my disciples out of this. One of the officers takes umbrage in the way he's speaking to Annas and strikes him in the face, and so begins a journey a journey of great violence done by men to the Son of God. And while the judge of all the universe is degrading himself to the scrutiny and judgment of wicked men, he's being disowned by a friend. Peter had followed Jesus into the courtyard, probably with John. We think John likes to refer to himself, but not by using his name. He just says another disciple here. And three times we see in this passage, Peter deny his Lord. We see him deny the Savior. And notice the word that he uses, They ask, are you not one of his disciples? And Peter says, I am not. Where Jesus had stepped forward in power, saying, I am, Peter steps back, saying, I am not. He warms himself by the fire of the enemies of Jesus. D.A. Carson said, Peter preferred the warmth of the fire with Jesus' opponents to being out in the cold with Jesus'. And what's so strange and such an enigma about Peter in this passage is that he's, he seems ready to, to give his life. He picks up the sword and he's ready to fight. Peter's ready to follow the Jesus who would become king. He's ready to, to share in the victory of Christ. He's ready to share in the glory. But what of the man who's going to go to the cross? What do you make of a savior like that? And what when that, that savior calls you to follow him? to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to die to self. With Jesus, it is all or nothing. We don't get to come to him with our own terms and conditions, as we see so often in the world, even in the Christian world. Hallelujah, I'll accept the victory of Christ. I'll accept his purpose for my life. I'll step into that grand purpose. I'll accept victory over my, my bank account. I'll accept victory over my health. Victory over my suffering. Most of the Christian world has forgotten that we are called to share in his sufferings. So we don't come with terms and conditions. We come and say, Jesus, you are Lord of all. He's the great I am. He's the one who will come to judge the living and the dead. And so the only right response to him is, Jesus, you are master and commander. Not my way, but yours. He is the one who faced judgment so that you could receive grace and forgiveness. And the only right response is, Jesus, you are my all, and I will follow you with no strings attached. I only want and I need you. What do you make of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Jesus, we so often are fair-weather friends. We so often turn back when trouble comes and find it difficult to accept. We don't want to die to self. We don't want suffering and hardship. But Jesus, we know that you are worth it. Not only are you worth it because you have given your life as a ransom to save us and rescue us. But you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And how dare anything in our response be but that we would be submitted to your will. You are worthy of worship just because of who you are. And so I pray that you would take our hearts. You would remove from our hearts a tepid, lukewarm indifference. And you would help us to claim you fully and to be claimed by you. Amen.